Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to talk to economist Michael Bernstein. He's the head of Clean Prosperity and a co-author of Creating a Canadian Advantage, Policies to Help Canada Compete for Low-Carbon Investment. And we're talking, we'll be talking a lot today about the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and other policies the Biden administration has brought in to promote clean energy uh, uh, technologies. So welcome to the interview, Michael. Thanks, Markham. Good to be here. Well, you know, I've uh, interviewed you many, many times on video over the last, you know, three years plus, but this is the first time on on the podcast. So uh, welcome to Energy Talks. Great to be here. Yeah, and we also had the opportunity to meet last October in uh, in uh, in Ottawa, where I was uh, speaking. I was sitting on a panel uh, at a conference that you attended, and uh, was pleasantly surprised to see that you were taller than I imagined. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I could. Uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad you had that experience. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I think of economists as short. I'm, you know, Dr. Freud would have, <laughs> have some something to say about that. I'm sure, but it's just a you know quirk of mine, I guess. And that's um, despite the fact that half my interviews, I'm actually using my standing desk. So uh, you know, you learn something every day through in-person interaction. There, that, there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, we are going to talk about this paper that you co-wrote with. Uh, Bentley Allen from the Transition Accelerator. I've had Bentley on here be, before. Who's the the third co-author? Well, Bentley and I actually work with a couple of colleagues from our respective organizations. So there are a few other kind of contributing authors that include Brendan Frank, Jake Wadlin, uh, both from Clean Prosperity, and then Travis Southern, who's with Bentley at the Transition Accelerator. Gotcha. I have uh, interviewed a couple of those gentlemen. Well, let's get into this because... Um, I had somebody on the other day um, for a podcast interview, and they, we we added up, you know, what was in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, the Investment in, in Infrastructure Investment Act, and it was well over a trillion dollars over the next, you know, six seven years. Let's say by twenty thirty, it's a lot of money, and it's also an example, of course, of of U.S. industrial modern industrial policy, which Bentley is has talked about on on the podcast uh, before. So this is big news, but how big is it for for Canada? Give us some context. Yeah, this is a a massive challenge and potentially an opportunity because what we did in the paper is we looked across all of the key clean technologies, hydrogen, CCS, electricity, et cetera. And really in all of those areas, what the U.S. has done is they've opened up a real economic advantage over Canada, which is to say that really any investor who's thinking about putting in, investing in that, any of those clean technologies in Canada or the U.S. would, as it stands today, be leaving millions of dollars on the table if they were to choose Canada. And that is a real problem 
especially if we're hoping to get an outsized share of, of the clean energy economy. The, you know, I, I hear echoes of the uh, of this conversation over the last two, three decades, and somebody is sitting at, you know, listening to this podcast and thinking, or, or probably yelling at the at their computer, uh, well, don't subsidize it all. Just let the market sort it out. Let the market decide. And that reminds me of a comment I read in Mariana Mazzucato's book about the entrepreneurial state. And she said, don't listen to what the Americans say about how they go about economic policy. Yeah, they talk about free markets and private capital and less regulation. She says, that's not how they do it. They go out and they subsidize research, basic science and research, early stage technologies, and they, then they get them into the process of commercialization and they subsidize that. And they do it through the Department of Energy and NASA and the military and all sorts of government agencies, including direct legislation like this. And then when the technology's ready, then the private sector picks it up and runs with it and, and turns it into the internet or turns it into you know some other kind of product. And so this idea that Canada can sit on the on the sidelines or should or should sit on this public money should sit on the sidelines because we shouldn't we shouldn't pick winners and losers we shouldn't subsidize these companies is utter nonsense and the Americans themselves are the proof of that. Yeah, well, and I would tell you, Markham, that today not only are they doing everything you said. But they are also stepping up in a big way and perhaps a surprising way on the commercialization side. They are now giving, for example, anybody who invests in renewable hydrogen, three US dollars for every single kilogram of hydrogen. And that's government money that's going out the door. So I think it is very true that there is the theoretical exercise on paper and in models that people like me like to look at. Uh, and then there is what is happening in the real world and what an investor today is facing when they have to make a decision about where to place bets of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Now, the good news for Canada is we actually can still leverage our carbon pricing program as one part of our strategic response. Um, but we do also, as you indicated, need to pick places where we are going to spend additional funds um, or people are, simply aren't going to invest here or invest sufficiently. And there's some additional context that's required. And that is that the in 2022, well, uh, today, we're recording this on February 24th. It's the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that changed everything. Yeah. It literally did. I mean, uh, governments went from this idea of a oh, globalization and you know we would have supply chains stretched all over the world and and it became very clear that russia was it was willing to weaponize energy to an extent we never imagined and then of course the united states which has been locked in you know st uh, strategic competition with china for years and years and years took said okay there's russia well let's look over oh oh my god china controls you know, like 60, 70, 80 percent of the clean energy technology. So if that's the way we're where we're going and we're going to now leave ourselves open to both Russia and China weaponizing the old energy and the new energy. Like, no, we're not going to do that. That's that's nuts. And so this to some extent, this uh, these acts and these this money from the Americans is as much about uh, national security as it is energy security or economic development. And 
And of course, now we're moving to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act said that a lot of, there are a lot of um, provisos in the act for uh, investment or for not for investment, but for goods and services tied to the clean energy. It can come from not just the U.S., not just domestic, but it's also regional. So if you got a, a country that like Canada, where you have a tr free trade agreement, then we're part of the club. Yeah. So th this is a very unique time, and I would argue it's a once in a hundred years uh, opportunity, right? You know, ju just since the IRA was uh, was put in place, there's already been enough projects announced in the U.S. that amount to a hundred thousand jobs, and it's growing every day. Um, so it just tells you that the scale of the opportunity here is massive. Um, it's in; it will eventually be in the hundreds of thousands of jobs for Canada. Um, in terms of being on the table, the question is whether we are going to seize them. And so we we need to respond. There is, as you would know, a budget, a federal budget coming up here in Canada in the next few weeks. The government has said that one of their priorities is to respond to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. But the question is, what does that really mean? Are we going to step up in a big way, in a way that frankly is a bit out of character for this government if the past is any guide? Um, and so that's what we were really trying to set out in this paper is a bit of a blueprint for how we could step up in a way that makes sense for Canada. Right. And your paper analyzed the differences in policy-based economic incentives for decarbonization in Canada and the U.S. along two dimensions. Please explain those two dimensions for us. Yeah, that's right. So the first thing we looked at, and I think it's really the most critical one, is what is the money that is available to an investor or a company that they can count on for sure from the outset? We call that bankable revenue. It's money that you can put in your spreadsheet, you can take to your banker, and you can say, look, we will get that money. To stick on the hydrogen example, if it's renewable hydrogen, Every facility knows we're getting three US dollars, about $4 Canadian for every kilogram, and that's going to happen for sure. In Canada, we have some investment tax credits. So that's different from the US production tax credits um, that you can also rely on. And that's a good thing, right? That helps companies, that does provide an incentive. Um, but the problem is that many of these technologies are much more about the operating costs than the capital costs that are up front. And so what we really tried to do is do an apples to apples comparison in this paper. So if you look at hydrogen, let's actually take what's called blue hydrogen now, which is essentially fossil fuel based hydrogen with carbon capture uh, put on. In that case, Canada is offering seven cents per kilogram, that's what it comes out to. And the Americans are offering a dollar. Those are both Canadian figures. So this is not really a difficult choice today according to the bankable revenue. Now, there is a second set of incentives to, to answer your question that we did look at, um, and that is other money that might be available to that hydrogen project in Canada and this is things like uh, money they might generate from credits in the carbon price system or grant money they might be able to get from some different Canadian government programs 
for example, the Canada Growth Fund or the Net Zero Accelerator Fund, there's pools of money available, but the challenge is you don't know from the get-go whether you're going to get this money, and you've got to invest a lot of time and a lot of money before you find out whether you're going to get that stuff. So that's that's the second class of things. And to sum it all up, what I would say to you, Markham, is you know the way I classify it is what Canada is doing is they're offering a coach ticket on the plane with a chance at an upgrade. You're sure you're going to get the coach ticket. Maybe you'll get upgraded, but you got to see what's happening. What the Americans are doing, they're sending everybody to first class right off the get-go. And so that's that's kind of the distinction here, but uh, that's how and that's how we talk about it. Bankable money versus other money, essentially. Right. And uh, let's talk about the time factor, because I don't know how many uh, experts I've interviewed now uh, where they say, you know, Canada has to be focused here because we really only have in many of these industries uh, two to five years. There's there's so much global competition for capital and so many other countries like Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia. Those are the you know three I, I are my usual examples, but they want to in on this as well. And, you know, Korea is already over in the U.S. negotiating ways for their EV manufacturers and their and their battery manufacturers to be able to fit under the U.S. Infrastructure uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So there's a lot of competition here. And Canadians aren't used to moving at this speed, right? I mean, I could, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And now there is one piece of good news here for Canada, which is that we can start with the carbon pricing system as a foundation for our strategy going forward. It's not going to be sufficient. And I'll come to the other things in one minute. But I just want people to understand that we do have a policy in place in industrial pricing that can be the source of some of these incentives going forward. But what we've got to do is give companies the assurance upfront today that they are going to be able to sell the credits they get in these pricing systems for a specific amount of money. So we essentially need the government to provide a kind of insurance to say, look, you're, you can count on getting, name your price, $100 a ton, let's just call it for those credits you're going to generate next year and the year after. And if you're only able to get $70 out in the private market, guess what? We as government will top you up an additional $30. So that's a starting point. They could do that tomorrow. The program's in place. And it would send a wide signal. It would actually accommodate some of my colleagues and other economists who do believe, look, we shouldn't pick winners and we should make sure we incentivize everyone. So we can do that and... We can have our cake too, essentially, right? By also layering on top of that some real bets in specific strategic sectors where we are going to have to get our act together and put some real money on the table to try to compete with all the countries you mentioned and others. Well, let's, you've got seven energy technologies here. Let's go through them one by one. Direct air capture. And, and this is fascinating to me because it's so controversial. Uh, the idea that we can just suck uh, CO2 out of the air, bury it, you know, underground and uh, and somehow, you know, get to our, that that'll be a, a major contributor to emissions reductions. It's an interesting story. What, what, what's the, your take on it in this paper? Markham, I'm, I'll tell you that my take is we are going to need this and we are going to need it at a scale that I think very few people appreciate. So in order to explain this, let me start by saying this. 
even if Canada hits its 40% target for 2030, which a lot of people are pretty skeptical about, but even if we do that, by 2032 or 2033, we will have already used all of the carbon budget, all of the carbon that we as Canada can put in the atmosphere before we cross the 1.5 degree threshold, which is one way of saying that essentially we have just put too much carbon in the atmosphere as a global community. It is too late to rely only on mitigation. It doesn't mean we can't, we shouldn't mitigate. We absolutely must. And there are people who have used these technologies and others in a bad faith way to try to come up with excuses for not decarbonizing. So I want to be very clear that that is not what I'm saying. We have to be just as ambitious as we've always been about stopping to emit. But at the same time, we are going to need a staggering amount of carbon dioxide removal, whether that's direct air capture, or there are other technologies that can do that too. But we have it's just very clear from the math. We have to pull this stuff out of the atmosphere. And we're going to have to build an industry globally that is two, three, or more times the size of the oil and gas industry. It's a huge industry, and Canada can be a big player. Okay, what kind of incentives, uh, what kind of policies uh, and regulations can be used uh, to incentivize investment in direct air capture? Well, today we have one policy already, which is the investment tax credit for, it's essentially called a credit for carbon capture and storage, but it includes direct air capture. And there we're, we're incentivizing 60% of the CapEx, the government is providing a tax credit for 60% of the CapEx. But well, as good as that was a year ago, the Americans have stepped up in a huge way. And so, you know, our credit, just to put some numbers on it, basically our credit would amount to about $160 a ton of, for carbon pulled out of the atmosphere. The U.S. is offering $264, okay, through their production oh, wow. credit. It's a big number. It's a, sta a huge number, right? And they're basically going to pay companies uh, you know, $260 million a year is basically what it'll amount to. The government's going to just pay them that. It's it's staggering when you think about it, but that's what they have on the table. So Canada is going to have to do something similar. That, sorry, uh, clarify that for me. Uh, did I hear correctly? $264 billion? Million, million, million. Yeah. So well, Okay. So that's not, to me, that's not a staggering amount of money. I mean, uh, you know, given... <laughs> Given the well, fact that they- it's per facility, right? It's per facility. That's the big thing. I'm not talking about the total. I'm saying every facility is going to oh. get $64 million. This is an at-scale plant, okay? So the, the, the Carbon Engineering, which is a company in BC, which I'm sure you've referenced on the podcast before, they are in partnership with a US company building a right. one megaton plant in the US with Occidental Petroleum. That's right. Right. And that facility will get $264 million a year in tax credits. Canada's offering $159 million effectively. And we're going to have to make up the difference. If we want to get some of these facilities in Canada, we're going to have to offer something like $80 million a year in the form of a production tax credit. Can I bring up a related issue here? Uh, direct air capture sucks a lot of electricity. Yep. It takes a lot. And, Absolutely. you know, it's it's hilarious. To, well, it's not hilarious. It, it aggravates and annoys me to hell, the hell out of me. Uh, I, you know, I hear people on the, oh, we don't have to, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll build out our electricity system in due time. It's no, it's no big deal. We'll stick some storage on BC's dams and it'll be all, all right. 
And it's not just about electrifying transportation. It's not just about sticking heat pumps in buildings. It's not about changing steel making over to electric arc furnaces. Direct air capture all by itself would be a huge extra load onto any provincial electricity system. I couldn't agree with you more. If we were building out the direct air capture sector at the scale we need, it would require all of the electricity in Canada today. You're kidding all. me. All. So what that means is a couple of things. First of all, it, it tells you that most of the estimates, in my view, about what the electricity needs we're going to require in the future, even those two to three times numbers that you hear, we'll need two to three times the electricity. I think that could be an underestimate, frankly, of what we need, not just because of direct air capture, but because those estimates typically don't include industries that we just don't know about yet. Then what that those estimates are just about electrifying the stuff we know about already. So right. direct air capture is just an example of a potential huge new need for electricity. Now, do I think we're going to be able to build enough electricity just to accommodate that one sector? That's going to be pretty tough. You know, we'll see what happens with small modular nuclear reactors, geothermal, other things, but it's going to be fission maybe. But we'll, but those are wild cards, right? Those aren't things we can count on. So I, you know, look, what I can tell you today is direct air capture is the first technology we've created that can suck carbon out of the air. There are others. We'll get better at it. But yes, electricity and many other resources are going to be a challenge. Well, let's talk about carbon capture and storage because I have very conflicted feelings about this. I mean, I, I you know, I listen to the IEA, the International Energy Agency, talk all the time about how carbon capture storage is going to have to be CCS is going to have to be a big part of this. We're, we're never going to get to net zero without it. And then I look at the oil sands in Alberta, which you know they've got a seventy-five billion dollar project to of which carbon CCUS is about two thirds of it. And they want government to pay $50 billion. And, and literally, in their model, all it is is slapping some equipment on their plants uh, up north uh, in northern Alberta and building a big pipeline down a couple hundred kilometers to a place called Cold Lake in the northeast part of Alberta and then burying it underground. And all we're doing, we would spend, the, the public would spend $50 billion to just, you know, extend the life of oil producing assets that may or may not be economic after 2030. And we don't know because we've never modeled mm -hmm. uh, oil's, oil's competitiveness, Canadian oil's competitiveness, uh, you know, in a, in a, a declining demand scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. This, this, I'm sorry for that this is a hobby horse of mine, but uh, you know, how you spend $50 billion of public money and you haven't even done an economic modeling study to know whether the industry you're helping is going to be around in 2035 or 2040 is a travesty. And it, you know, and I think, you know, Canadians should be rightly upset that the work wasn't done ahead of time to justify the kind of public money we're spending on this. So look, I'm totally with you on the idea that we need to be data-driven. We absolutely need more modeling. We need to understand how the investment in uh, the oil and gas sector, or frankly, any sector, compares to the alternative investments we might make and what the benefits are. So we are 100% aligned on that part. Now, a couple of places where we may see it a little bit differently is, uh, well, first of all, just one thing to say is that the CCS 
portion of the plan that was presented by the oil sands companies, I think makes up a significant share of their first phase of reductions. They've got something like a 23 or 26 megaton reduction proposed for 2030. And there you see a lot of that coming from CCS. I think it's- Oh, let me, let me jump in. It's 16.5 megatons. Okay, there you go. Well, uh, so that is right. So it's two thirds probably of the phase one decarbonization, but of the whole picture, I think it's it would two thirds. Up, I think it no. would make up less. It's two so, thirds. Now the the and 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 so while we're on this topic, the current uh, emissions from the oil sands are eighty megatons a year, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and that is likely going to rise to ninety by twenty twenty five, according right. to Kevin Byrne, right. who models this stuff for S and P Global. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that means they have to take out 60 megatons a year with CCUS and they're only their budget is only for 44. Well, I think there's other there's other options they have at their disposal, right? Ultimately, oh, what they have yes. to do, right, they have to either capture it or they have to not burn it in the case of some of the heat that they produce for some of their in-situ generation. So anyway, maybe we can without going into the details of their plan, I guess what I would say to you is my first of all. CCS is going to benefit many different industrial facilities, a lot of which are not in the oil and gas sector. So it's natural for many folks to first think about the oil and gas sector, and we can talk about that for sure. But I just want to be very clear that there's benefits to cement, to chemicals, potentially to pulp and paper. Uh, we talked about hydrogen, right, which may or may not involve oil and gas companies. In some cases, there's other investors. So there is a broader, I think, case for CCS. And my own view is we shouldn't rule out or in any particular technology. It should be about the data, to your earlier point. It should be about what's the cost per ton, what's the economic benefit. And if we want companies to invest in this or other technologies, we've got to give them the right incentives. Yes, it is true that the oil and gas companies, the oil sands, for example, have made a lot of money in the last few years. I, no one would deny that. Um, but if you want them to make investments in these technologies, I think we need to look at a policy framework to do that. Okay, what policy framework do you recommend in the paper? Well, in the paper, we are looking at the economic incentives for, for actually cement CCS. And okay. in that case, what we say is actually we're in pretty decent shape in Canada. Our investment tax credit comes close-ish to the production tax credit that the U.S. is giving. There's about a $40 gap between them. And we actually, if we were going to make the credits from our carbon pricing system, systems like the Alberta tier program, bankable, if we're going to provide that insurance, we could leap ahead of the Americans. We could actually open up a bankable advantage and attract a lot of investment into Canada. Okay, fair enough. So we're, we're close on CCS. And and uh, Michael, I have many thoughts on CCUS, and we'll we'll save that for another another, another day, uh, because we've got we've got five more areas to go here, and we don't need to turn this into a Markham rant. So let's go All on right. to blue, let's go on to blue hydrogen. Great. So tell us what you're suggesting for blue hydrogen. Yeah. So I mean, look, you're gonna people are gonna start to hear a pretty uh, similar pattern, although in the later ones you'll see some differences. But here again, it's comparing our investment tax credit which is worth seven cents uh, for blue hydrogen 
per kilogram to a plant that was set up in the US, Texas is the example you use, we use rather, where there's a dollar coming for every kilogram of hydrogen. So you've got a 93 cent gap. And if we want the investment here in Canada, we're gonna have to think about how to close it. Um, again, like CCUS, there is a potentially promising opportunity to just provide certainty in the carbon pricing system. And that alone could close the gap. Is this the contract for differences that we've talked about in other interviews? That's exactly right. Yeah. Could so, you explain? Could you explain that for anybody who hasn't hasn't watched our interviews? I was I was hoping you would ask. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, look, the way the contract for difference works is the government says we will ensure that you, company X, can get a set price for your credits. So, if the government sets that price at a hundred dollars, just to use an example. Uh, the company will come back and say, look, the credits were that we were only able to sell them for $70. And so the government will give them additional $30. Of course, the other side of that coin is if the company was actually able to sell them for a higher price, let's call it $120, the company now owes the government $20. So it's a right. contract at a set price. And who pays who really depends on what happens out in the private marketplace. Um, the key thing there, of course, is it provides that upfront certainty that before you go right. ahead and spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a hydrogen facility, on a direct air capture facility, or what have you, you know what price you can generate or, or you can earn for those credits. Right. And we should point that this uh, approach was tried in Alberta with renewable energy and actually made the, the government. The government earned 26 million bucks before the UCP uh, canceled it. So uh, exactly. it does work. It does That's work. exactly right. And it's a great example. So number four, let's try Let's talk about green hydrogen. Uh, and I think for a little bit of context, we've been I keep talking to uh, startups and, and other co co companies in the green hydrogen space. And they're talking about electrolyzers on the learning curve and coming down costs coming down fast. And the the goal, of course, I think uh, the U.S. government actually has kind of like a hydrogen green hydrogen moonshot or a hydrogen moonshot where they want to get it down to a dollar a kilogram. And yeah. green hydrogen is generally six to eight dollars a kilogram. And with Chinese electrolyzers soon coming into the market, some new new different technologies like oh solid oxide. I, I'm not, this is not my area of, you know, I'm not an engineer, but anyway, anyway, some new technology is coming on. This looks like it, it really is going to be a, uh, a growth industry quicker than we thought. That's right. Now the challenge here in green hydrogen is that the Americans are providing probably one of the most generous incentives across all of the technologies. I mean, you just referenced that the cost today are six to $8 a kilogram going hopefully to $1 by 2030. And yet the Americans are paying $4 Canadian, $3 US per kilogram. So, you know, this is basically an excuse to print money, it seems like, for anyone who knows how to set up one of these facilities. And to make matters more complicated for Canada, this is one of the areas where it's not as clear that a company could, could fit within the industrial carbon pricing program. Because they aren't going to be emitting anything, uh, you know, the rules are a little different in every province. Maybe we won't go into that, but there's certainly some provinces where they won't be able to get any of those credits that other facilities would get in pricing. Right. So there's a huge gap. 
and it's less clear how we respond. Um, and this is one where, you know, I think Canada, we Canada is going to have to make a tough choice. Are we going to spend really a ridiculous amount of money to try to match the Americans? Or are we better to focus in other areas? And actually, our answer in this initial paper was we probably ought to focus in other places. Yeah, that's a really interesting argument. Um, there was a, a $6 billion uh, uh, green hydrogen project announced on the east coast of Canada not that long ago. And it's for export over to the to Europe. Now, the folks I talk to are a little skeptical that that hydrogen is going to ex, you know ship well, either through yeah. a pipeline or or in a ship. But the area where it does seem to have a lot of potential is where you actually have the electrolyzer on site. So if you've got like a truck stop, if you've got you know something like that where you can you can make electro uh, make green hyd hydrogen, the electrolyzer is right there beside the truck or very close to it. Then that becomes a that's a whole different business model, and that seems to be quite a bit more feasible. And that might be the way that we uh, decarbonize long haul trucking in a hurry, for just for example, or yeah. you know you use it for steel. And you have the electrolyzers right next to the to the steel plant. Uh, so that's right. I, anyway. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I think what that suggests, however, is that we'll probably need a more targeted strategy for right. green hydrogen um, and all forms of hydrogen, frankly, than simply saying anyone who wants to set up a facility can have four dollars a kilogram. We, you know, it's our determination, judgment call that that is just too expensive. Canada and we ought to focus elsewhere. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in I, kind I of a broad, that. right, in terms of a widespread kind of systematic response. Now, the fifth one uh, is sustainable aviation fuel. And I'll give you a little bit of background that I have. I, I interviewed Lanza Tech. Uh, they have two com companies, Lanza Tech and Lanza Jet. And I can never figure out which one has, has the technology. But anyway, they take, they have a microbial process that takes captured CO2 and clean electricity, and through the magic of this process, turns out sustainable aviation fuel. And they're putting together a pilot pro project in this small city in Sweden, and using they have a district heating system there, and so that's where the CO2 will come from, and they have a, a, a renewable energy company, so they'll have clean electricity. And by 2026, when the pilot project's done, SAS, SAS the Swedish uh, airline will be supplying 25% of its needs from that from that plant. And uh, Suncor, the big Canadian uh, you know oil and gas company, is an investor in in, in Lanzatech. So there's already a there's already a, a connection there. And it seems to me that that kind of process, because they're not the only one in the market, but that kind of a process, sustainable aviation fuel could be a just a, a natural fit for Canada. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, for all the reasons you say, and also Canada, of course, has the advantage of having ready access to biomass in a way that many other countries don't. We also import a lot of uh, sustainable aviation fuel today. There's no reason for us to do that. Um, so we see for a number of reasons that this is a great economic opportunity. And it happens to be a place where the American incentives are actually not as unaffordable as some other areas we've already discussed. So they are providing, uh, it's a little bit over a 50 cent uh, per liter incentive, but it's only for five years. Different from the other incentives that are 10 year incentives. So we think there actually is an affordable way to match the Americans. 
And maybe if we extend it beyond five years, we actually open up an advantage in that area too. Yeah, I, I think the um, uh, listeners will know because I, I usually do a, I wind up in these kind of conversations having to do a disclosure. Uh, you know, I was hired this the past summer to be the lead writer on the Alberta Federation of Labor's clean energy strategy, the um, uh, skate to where the puck is going. And sustainable aviation fuel and hydrogen were two of the the missions of this, two, sorry, one, they, they comprise one of the seven missions that went in that report. And I'd have to say that I'm a, a big fan of this and um, it's something that uh, I think we, you know, if we can carve out a, a competitive niche here, then we ought to do it. Okay, so that's those four technology. Sorry, five technologies. I would consider wildcards. All of them are in development. Uh, they show promise. They look like they'll be competitive down the road, and we should we should support them with public funding. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, but the next two are sure bets, oh. and those are they're competitive. Uh, they are already, you know, bat they're battery manufacturing a large scale solar energy and, you know, large solar is already the cheapest way to generate electricity and battery manufacturing is, I mean, the battery industry is probably the most dynamic and innovative in of all clean energy technologies. It's utterly amazing. And, you know, for instance, I was interviewing a company uh, whose name escapes me, but anyway, based out of Halifax of all places who are bringing to market a zinc air uh, zinc ion uh, mm -hmm. battery that will have all the performance uh, uh, characteristics of lithium ion uh, but 30% less cost or lower cost and they're designed for for stationary storage like it could be your house could be utility scale solar whatever it is mm -hmm. and that's just one of dozens of different chemistries yeah. that are coming yeah. and and uh, anyway so i think that around battery manufacturing um that we and we have we have research capacity in canada we have we have some competitive advantages and this is an area where i'd like to see the government or oh and the other thing and again this gets back to the afl report is china controls almost 80 percent of battery or sorry critical mineral uh, refining and processing into battery metals and if there is an opportunity for Quebec, Quebec's already on it. Uh, Alberta's talking about it, but not moving very quickly. But but attracting investment into bat critical minerals, refining a process, huge. And that, of course, is part of the battery manufacturing supply chain that I'm sure you're going to talk about. Yeah. So there's all there's there's a great setup, and there's there's all sorts of reasons why this is an area of great interest to the federal government and many governments around the world. Canada happens to have some real advantages here, including that we have a lot of the minerals. Yes, there are also some challenges like you discussed in terms of the processing, but it's exactly in that midstream area, the chemical processing of minerals, where we think Canada can, with the right policy, largely meaning stepping up with incentives, production tax credits, um, can start to attract uh, facilities here at home. Uh, and as you would well know, and you've spoken about before, now is the time we've got to do it. These supply chains will harden in the next few years. And there's every reason to think from a jobs and economic perspective that we ought to match the Americans on some of the incentives, and that's the key piece, 
it's there are certain incentives in the battery supply chain where we think it's affordable for Canada to play things like the uh, battery active materials. Think about the the the, pro the chemical process of making cathodes and anodes and separators, all the stuff that goes into the battery, essentially. But the battery assembly itself, which is kind of the sexiest part of the supply chain, is actually the place we don't think we should play because it's going to be too expensive. It's going to cost, by our estimates, $2 billion per year per facility. So that means the one plant that we've gotten in Canada, if we want another one, it's $20 billion over 10 years. That doesn't strike us as the best use of our limited public dollars. No, and, I, and it seems to me that the Americans are very, very keen about setting up a battery industry in North America. And so if the Canadians, you know, like if we can go to the Americans and say, and when we know for a fact that starting last year, the Biden administration and the Trudeau government, the Canadian government, have been in, have had many, many talks about critical minerals and, and batteries. So there's there's a lot of talk about, about strategy at that high level. And if we can say, look, we're going to carve out the minerals and the, and the midstream on batteries and you can have you can have the you know the 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 assembly and you can manufacture the 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 cells and all of the component parts and stuff that that's fine but this is where we're going to i i i think i agree with you i i think that's a huge opportunity yeah that's great and, and i have to give a lot of credit to my colleague bentley allen who i think you've talked to about this before for really diagnosing where is it that canada can have its greatest advantage uh in this supply chain that's right. And anybody who wants to uh, listen to my interview with Bentley about that, about battery supply chains and the strategy that Canada uh, can't, you can find it on and on, on our uh, Energy Talks uh, site. So um, uh, I won't I won't bother linking to it or anything. It's easy to find. Well, let's talk about large scale solar energy. And this invites a conversation, a larger conversation about how Canada has structured its electricity system, because we don't have a, an electricity system. We have 10 electricity systems and then three little ones up in the territories. And they all are fiefdoms. They, they are under provincial regulation. They are, in many cases, uh, I think eight out of 10. Well, no, you can even, in, in Ontario, there's a publicly owned utility as well. So you've got crown corporations. And here we have, and I think, uh, Michael, this is the classic case of incumbents impeding innovation and responding to disruption. Because invariably, when you have a, a government-owned crown corporation, the crown <laughs> either captures the regulator or has a lot of influence and almost invariably captures the government, right? Because they have all this a highly technical inf uh, and complex industry. The government, the politicians don't have that kind of expertise. And basically, the more often than not, the utility gets what it wants. The incumbent, you know, dominates this process. But if if we're correct in that you know the 21st century uh, is belongs to electricity, and we've got a bunch of incumbents that don't really want to take the risk to build out capacity and so on, that gets to be a I don't know how we're going to solve this problem, but that it, it's a big issue. It absolutely is a big issue. It's one that does extend, as you say, beyond the kind of pure dollars and cents that was really the focus of our report. So in terms of the analysis that we've done. Um, you know, we see that Canada is in, in reasonable shape here, actually, relative to the U.S., depending on what province and what state you're comparing, because obviously the quality of the solar is going to make a big difference. How many hours is the sunshine? 
But as we know, Alberta has uh, does very well on that front, especially as does Saskatchewan right next door. Yeah, fair enough. As does Saskatchewan. And uh, but it is going to probably take. So we probably should distinguish between Alberta, the one kind of open market here in Canada uh, versus the others in in the in Alberta. It is going to probably take, um, you know, if we want to compete with the Americans, it's going to take more generous incentives. We're, we're behind, um, you know, but in the other markets, there's other policies that are going to be needed, procurement policies, right. other things. Can we talk about Alberta for a minute? Because uh, the U.S. has had uh, solar incentives for a long time and and Alberta has not. I mean, basically, it's an open market. Uh, uh, sorry. Um, generation and uh, retail are uh, not regulated. So any any uh, approved developer can build a solar farm and has the right to connect to the grid and then sell into the wholesale market and, and compete. And so big corporations like the Royal Bank and Microsoft and Amazon have stepped up with per per power purchase agreements and 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 bought uh, provided the the demand for local developers to build wind and solar. So last year, uh, Alberta had a, a gigawatt of, of, of renewables capacity built, most of it solar, and that was far and away the most in, in Canada. This year, it's going to be two gigawatts, and and then, then they can compete in that wholesale market. So does Alberta need the incentives because they've already been competing against U.S. incentives and done quite well without them? So will it should we yeah. just say, okay, well, look, it's it's going to give them a leg up. We got to be fair across the across the country, and and leave it at that. Uh, and you're making a great point. And I would say, actually, this is an area where it's less of a concern for me that we have a smaller package of incentives than the Americans for for a few reasons. I mean, one is the dynamics of electricity. This is not a market where you're going to get first mover advantage in another geography, and then people aren't going to produce electricity here. I mean, we know right. just by the nature of electricity, we need electricity in Alberta as in every province. And so really a lot of the competition that solar is going to face is going to be against other kinds of generating assets rather than the economics of solar in Texas. So there's a different dynamic due to the nature of the market than you'd have in many of the other technologies we've talked about. The second factor is that actually electricity is part of the pricing systems, the tier market in Alberta specifically. And there is uh, revenue that comes to a lot of those developers by selling credits from that system. There's another issue here that uh, that may be addressed by the it's an incentive package in Canada. And I'll use the, the BC as an example where I live. So uh, a couple of years ago, there was a controversy. They changed some legislation, and and it it provided less incentives. In fact, it, it disincentivized uh, wind and solar. And you know, people like me were asking the minister Bruce Ralston, "Well, where is all the power going to come from? You know, they're building one more dam, which is Site C, so it'll add about seven or eight percent more co generating capacity in the province. But if you need two or three times that much." Uh, now you've got a problem. Where is it going to come from? Because you're not going to build any more dams. And he said, oh, we'll just buy cheap California solar. And so what I did was, I, you know, a good journalist, I, I went and found three American uh, experts, including one of them was, um, oh, the fellow who was became the current chair of Casio in California. 
Mm-hmm. He was at the Powerville Bonnie, uh, sorry, the Bonneville Power Administration at that time. And I asked them the question, is that a good strategy for BC to just you know, look for, you know, marginal electricity, extra electricity down in the U.S. markets. And they said, no, it's a terrible idea. And the reason is, is because the, uh, the, what, yes, there's, there's surplus solar now, but the Americans are already moving very aggressive. California is moving very aggressively to capture that. So it, it doesn't get curtailed. So for instance, you have huge build out of battery capacity in the uh, California grid, You've you've got they're busy working on green hydrogen like the LA High Deal uh, project and whatever solar uh, you know surplus solar there is today will probably not be there in two years or five years and you have to make these kinds of decisions you know BC Hydro has to make these decisions long in advance of two to five years so it's a terrible idea and so I worry that provinces like BC. Uh, will not have enough incentive to move into wind and solar, particularly solar, and and instead will just will focus more on on north south trade to make up the deficiency. I'm really concerned about what's happening in the provinces today. Uh, it does not seem like we are preparing for the amount of electricity, clean electricity, that we are clearly going to need if we're serious about transitioning to a low carbon economy. Um, and when we are actually thinking about what we're going to need, we're using strategies like the one you just spoke about. So clearly, there's a lot of change that's going to be needed in the sector that is going to be the backbone of our low carbon economy. Um, but what I would tell you is, I think the economic incentives are not the key problem. Yes, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I mean, you could also make an argument uh on the other side, you see um, hydro utilities like Quebec, which has enormous, enormous hydro, but they're smart enough. They've been building wind farms and, and contracting the electricity because they, they see the argument that we in the West don't, and I don't know how we don't understand it, but you know that, that hydro acts like a battery for re- intermittent renewable energy. And so Quebec has figured that out and is busy building out wind farms. And probably if there are incentives in the in the budget in a couple of weeks, uh, that would be a windfall for Quebec. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. And because they've been doing that, as you would know, a lot of companies are looking to set up in Quebec who need large amounts of clean power. Bingo. Hydrogen facilities looking at setting up. And guess what? To take it back to the beginning of our conversation, I've heard just in the last week, there's a company seriously looking at a direct air capture facility in Quebec because of the access to stable, clean sure. power. So it is it is clearly the right strategy in this low carbon economy. And I am equally perplexed by why we don't see other provinces uh, taking that strategy. I can't say this enough. And if I, I may have said it at the, at the beginning of the interview, but I'll say it again because it bears repeating. And that is electricity is the foundation of the 21st century economy. And if you don't have a, a, an electricity system that can provide clean, reliable, low-cost electricity, you're not competitive. I agree. Well, sir, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I will provide a link to your report uh, in the show notes, and we will have you back on the podcast uh, in the near future. Thanks, Markham. Always great to talk to you. 